Humanity fell from paradise by listening to this lie, the lie of Satan. You will not surely die. And then he went on to say, you will be as God. The lie of of Satan proved false. He was shown to be a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But his words, you will be as God, continue to appeal to the human heart. We like to be liked. We like to be in charge. We like to be looked up to, to be patted on the back and told how we could be so much better. You could, you're so great. We drink the Kool-Aid that self-promotion and self-exaltation is the path to everlasting glory. But it is not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, in the sight of God, the way up is down. Jesus Christ who is himself the fullness of deity, dwelling bodily, came and gave his life to stand in the place of his people, to suffer and die to save them. The message of the gospel Message of Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, is that the way of our King is not one of self promotion, but of self sacrifice. This is what He has done. The chief characteristic of God's people is not self-love, but self-denial. It is not to be served, but to be a servant. If you haven't already, then turn with me to Mark chapter 10, continuing our series beginning in verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And we're going to consider the narrative here in three parts and and walk through them. The first part in verses 32 to 34 is Jesus' prediction. Jesus telling us the way in which He is going to walk and His disciples following Him. Secondly, we have the presumption of James and John in verses 35 to 40. And thirdly, in verses 41 to 45, we have Jesus' purpose, His mission for coming. This is what He came for. So we're going to begin with Jesus' prediction, reading verses 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, uh, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The contrast between Jesus and the disciples is quite striking. In that first verse, verse 32, Jesus strides ahead. He walks towards his destiny knowing what is to come. Knowing that he is there to face a bitter cup and to drink a bitter cup full of suffering and death. He's a man on a mission with a purpose. But the disciples lag behind, confused and frightened. They had thought that Jesus would rise to military might, that he would crush their enemies and establish a glorious kingdom greater than than Rome. But now, Doubts and questions fill their minds. They're on their way to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin has stood opposed to Jesus throughout all his ministry. They don't understand what Jesus has been teaching them or or where all of this is going yet. And they're struggling. If we were writing the story, I think that it's right about now that we would write, and Jesus gave a rousing speech, and they marched onwards to victory or something like that. You know, Jesus said, just be your authentic self and you will rise above. Just think positive. Just Follow your dreams. Something like that. And all would be better. But instead, Jesus tells them for a third time the path ahead. In verses 33 and 34, he does this because they need to know. We need to know why he came. This time, Jesus gives very precise details here. In chapter 8, beginning in about verse 31, in chapter 9, beginning about verse 31, again, Jesus has given a prediction. He has told them what is going to happen. Now he fills it out, the picture in full. He sketched it out a little bit, but he paints the whole picture for us here. First, verse 33, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. That he had not said before. Now we see that Jerusalem will take center stage. And then he refers to himself again as the son of man, as the one in Daniel's dream who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all should serve him. Daniel 7. 
verses 13 and 14. Thus far, the disciples are on board. They believe this. But the path that Jesus foretells about Himself is one of suffering before glory. It's one of suffering before glory. He declares that the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, that He will be sentenced to death, that He will be delivered to the Gentiles, to the Roman people, that He will be mocked, spit upon, and scourged, that He will be executed, and then He will be resurrected. Each of these things, when we come to chapters 14 and 15 of Mark's Gospel, we will see happen, just as Jesus said. This is the good news that in Jerusalem, in the city of David, the Son of Man, Israel's King, would be handed over to the Gentiles by His own people, where He would then be mocked, spit upon, and whipped before being executed. The Savior will be humiliated in every way. It's only then that we're told, and after three days He will rise. What good news that is in light of all that has gone before. So the disciples at this point have now been told three times by their Master that He must suffer and die. That they, they had a, an understanding He was their Lord, that He was the Son of David, the promised Messiah. They needed to understand that He came first to suffer and die for the sins of His people. And yet each time thus far, they failed to understand. It's in one ear and out the other for them. After the first passion prediction in Mark chapter 8, Jesus rebukes Peter for speaking the words of Satan. After the second passion prediction in Mark chapter 9, the disciples argue about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. And surprise, surprise, after the third passion prediction in Mark chapter 10, G, uh, James and John asked Jesus for positions of honor and power in the kingdom. That is what they want. On the heels of Jesus' prediction, verses 35 and 40 recount James and John's presumption. Let's read with me verses 35 to 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a bold claim. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. 
Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So James and John come to Jesus seeking the best seats in the house, in the kingdom of God. They would like first place. Now they have quite great faith, for they believe at this moment that Jesus will rule the nations. But they also have great presumption, for they suppose that they ought to receive the best share in Jesus' great glory. The issue is not that they desired a place in the kingdom of God, They were given one by their master. But they presume to think that they should have the best place. They asked to sit on thrones as his right and left hand met. But still they do not understand the cost of what they are asking. For with such a position comes great cause. Glory does not come before suffering. Suffering comes before glory in the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells them very plainly He says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know what you're asking. You're asking something greater than you know. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Both of those images that Jesus uses, the cup and baptism, are prophetic references to bitter suffering and calamity, even the very death that Jesus would die. But James and John don't seem to think about the implications of those words. Suffering, death, hardship, How little they knew of what they were saying when they said, we are able. We can do it. How little they knew because they will indeed suffer. James would suffer unto death. John would be in prison. He would be beaten. And he would be sent into exile. They are promised suffering, for Jesus 
says in verse 39, they said, we are able. And Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will suffer, Jesus says. But he does not promise them the seats of honor that they asked for. He says that it is not his to grant. That authority was given to his father. And he willingly submitted to that authority. While on earth, you and I are not given the knowledge of where we'll sit in the kingdom of God. Nor are we able to earn our way to a higher seat. It is God who gives, and He gives as He wills, and He gives in a way that is generous beyond measure. James and John don't know it yet. But we know in hindsight that there is only one other place that Mark uses the phrase on his right and on his left. And he does so when he's describing the two thieves who will suffer besides Jesus. One of those men was received into glory long before James and John. I'm not saying that I think the thief on the cross has got the higher position than James or John. That's not the point that Mark is making when he highlights those words. But here was a man who demanded nothing all he had was a plea for mercy, not a cry for great power. He didn't want the best seat in the house. He just wanted a place in the kingdom of God. And he was humble enough to ask it as he died on a cross beside his Lord. And he was received in the kingdom of God into paradise that very day our Lord promised. We must not forget that entrance into God's kingdom and any place in the kingdom of God is because of the mercy of God on our lives. So we're not to come seeking the best place. Glory in the kingdom of God does not come by putting ourselves first, by self-promotion or self-exaltation. Glory comes by the road of suffering and service. This is what is pleasing to God. Ours is not to seek honor, but to seek to serve. And this is not only the way of Christ's kingdom, it is His way. It is His purpose, His mission for coming to 
to earth. Read with me from verse 41 to 45. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As you can imagine, once word leaked out about James and John's request to Jesus, their glory-seeking, the other disciples were mad. They were mad because they didn't want anyone stealing their spot in line. They could see the sin of their friends. How dare you ask that? But they didn't see that they were infected with the same self-absorption. They were only upset because they wanted the same promotion as right-hand man. How many times have you been upset because someone wanted something you felt you deserved more? Don't you hate it when somebody else thinks they deserve what you think you deserve? So often we think that way. We believe the lie of the serpent. I can be as God. I'm greater. I'm more important. I'm the one who ought to be served. Jesus very clearly puts a stop to the disciples' anger and their self-interest. By teaching them a second time. This is not the first time. Read Mark chapter 9. But it is the second time that he teaches them how God measures greatness. What is it that God sees as worthy of honor? First, in verse 42, he tells them not to be like the rulers of this world who lord it over their subjects. He says, you know the way that it is among those who are rulers of the Gentiles, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. This is not the way. Instead, he tells them to take the place of a servant or a slave. Jesus does this to show them that his kingdom doesn't operate like those of this world. Christ's disciples should not act like the domineering lords of Rome who ruled over them. We're not to play the same game, even if we live under unjust rulers.
the non-Christian ethic is to dominate. It's to seek power and to hold that power over the heads of others. It's to think of ourselves as better than someone else. To place our interests ahead of anyone else. The Christian ethic is to serve. It's to give of oneself. Not only that, the world restricts glory and greatness to the elite. To the 1%. To those that work the hardest, think the smartest, and, and yet God offers greatness to all who would stoop to serve. For he says, whoever wants to be great, verse 43. And this is repeated. I'll read verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The true measure of greatness is not self-exaltation, but self-sacrifice. And all of this culminates in Jesus declaring His royal mission, His purpose as the Messiah is to give His life. That's why He came. And it is really only now that Jesus tells us why He came in Mark's Gospel. He says, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, Lord of glory, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here's the man who could have demanded that everyone be his slaves. He who orders the stars in place and holds demons at bay could have come as the most exalted of kings. But in the perfect plan of God, Christ Jesus came voluntarily as a servant. He humbled himself. And he came to give his life as a ransom. As a substitutionary payment. A sacrifice had to be given to redeem someone. Came to do this in our place. Jesus paid the price for sin that we owed to God. The wages for sin, which Romans 6 verse 23 tells us, is death. It's not a small wage that we've earned. It's not a little debt that we owe. But Christ came to do what God alone could do. 
But the psalm writer writes in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his own life. For the ransom of their life is costly and will never suffice. It will never be enough. The psalmist gives hope and continues on. And in verse 15 of Psalm 49, we are told, But God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. God will do this. God is the only one able to do this. Jesus, as God, paid that ransom price. That is what Jesus says that he came to do. To give his life as a ransom. Many. He did this by standing in humanity's place as a substitute for you and I. He endured the judgment that was deserved for sin. He came to serve and to die so that whoever puts their trust in Him and in the price that He paid with His own life, that we might have peace with God and an unshakable inheritance into God's kingdom. A place that we did not deserve. That's why He came. This is the only gospel, the only good news that can save you. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. And whoever exalts himself will not receive a place in the kingdom of God. Whoever rejects Christ has no hope to live. Don't fool yourself. Let's not fool ourselves. Glory does not come by exalting yourself. It doesn't come from tooting our own horn, seeking the best place. Scripture is clear that no one may boast. For God has declared that Christ is the only way He is the only one who can give us eternal life. What good news that is. Because we could not earn it. We could not exalt ourselves enough to pay God back for our sin. Salvation is not Christ, then me. It's not Christ plus me. But it is Christ 
in me. He is the one who is able to save us and to enable us to walk the path that he himself trod. James and John spoke with presumption when they said, we are able. They would have been right if they had said to their Lord, you are able, Lord, to help us to walk that path, to lay down our lives for you, Lord, to do what you have called us to do. It is he that's able. And for those that trust in Christ, I'm not going to promise you that the road is not hard. It is. It is one that is again and again spoken of as one of self-sacrifice, of self-denial, of giving oneself, pictured with such bloody images as taking up a cross on your back for Jesus' sake and by the power of His Spirit. But Christ now lives and makes His home among those that trust in Him, among those that don't seek to exalt themselves but would humble themselves before Him to receive salvation from His hand. James and John did not then understand. But John, the son of Zebedee, will later echo Jesus' words when he says, He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is the way of the King. And it's the way of His people too. Because He is able. He is able to pay the debt that we could not. And to enable us to give of ourselves completely to Him. Are you willing then? In view of God's mercy? In view of the power of Christ? to walk this path? Are you willing to turn from self-exaltation to trust in Jesus and take the servant's place? How then will you go and do that? How will you take the servant's place? Think about that. This morning.